0: I am so excited for this episode. I got to speak with author Benjamin Labatut. We had a good discussion, and then he read from his book, When We Cease to Understand the World. I think you're really gonna like it. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound.
1: What's your writing routine like? I tend to write every day. That's, that's the truth. Monday through Sunday. I've had a, like, like most writers, I, I have a day job. So I would, I would steal away from the office and during coffee breaks and lunch breaks, or I would pretend that I was working on something uh, and do my own writing. It's sort of a continuous process for me. It's not, um, it doesn't really stop. I have a very hard time stopping which you have to do. I used to suffer from the exact opposite problem. I couldn't for the life of me put a word on paper. It took me, I only published my first book when I was about 29, something like that. It took me a long time to finish my second book. And after that, I sort of started writing and now I feel I cannot stop because my writing changed i think that's the main thing i used to believe that writing was a creative thing and it's not like that for me anymore it is more akin to walking and picking stuff up off the ground it's 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 um it's mostly investigation for me uh, so when I did that, everything changed for me. And I have a very different relationship to literature because of that. I, I see it as a sort of discovery process. No, I'm, I'm trying to look for things that are already in the world and not trying to squeeze them out of myself.
0: It's interesting because your relationship with language sounds more like how I used to refer to writing as though it was something, a language I was wrestling with. And so now you're in this place of investigation and it seems like you have this steady routine. Do you eat well, do you sleep well?
1: Well, if I said I slept well, my wife would probably laugh herself to death because I uh, I struggle with insomnia. I I started eating well when when we got together. We've been together for quite a while now and our relationship has really changed me in many ways. I was a mess before that and I met her. She's an artist. So I I get so much inspiration from her, but not just the sort of inspiration that people think you get. No, I'm, I'm talking about daily things. Just like I was I was talking on the phone to one of my friends last night about he's living in Brazil. My book came out in Brazil. He was really happy because when I met him, we were like two young writers who couldn't fucking write a word and you know you live this you you when you don't write you feel the necessity to live a writerly life and it's necessary but it's also really pathetic it's it's sad I think you know what I'm talking about
0: I know exactly what you're talking about
1: yeah no it's it's and then I I was talking to him we were talking about books and literature, and, and my wife started making fun of me because he, he called out, well, tell him what you're doing right now. And what I was doing was cleaning up. I was cleaning the, the living room and cleaning the kitchen, and you know, I was like, all these small details, just eating well. Or Again, I only started treating my insomnia because we had a kid, and I, I couldn't help because I was always just falling down from lack of sleep. So yeah, eating well, sleeping well, being in a loving relationship, I think are fundamental things if you want to actually write for a, for, for a long time and not kill yourself in the process.
0: Yeah, insomnia is something I've struggled with for many years and things changed for me when I met my partner and she has two daughters and I found that I couldn't help her much either when I was exhausted all the time, because I would, I would push myself to help out and then all of a sudden I'm taking two naps during the day and I'm also trying to write and I'm trying to do the job. It doesn't work.
1: It's, I think one of the hardest things for anybody who does anything creative is to, is to, is to not lose that, the passion that you feel when you're very young and when it's, it's sort of something you want to become. And the process of becoming a writer, to me, demands a sort of transformation. It does. It really asks you to look at things different and for that you do have to mess with your head in, in many ways. I don't believe that you can be a writer and just go around with the same operating system that everyone has, no? But, but you should also be very wary. You should be very careful because living a good life is fundamental. It, it, I don't believe in this whole crash-and-burn attitude towards art. No, I do believe you have to burn, but just don't crash. The Night Gardener is a strange text because it was written uh, long after I finished the book. I had already handed it in. It had actually already been published in, in Germany, which is the first country that this book came out in and I was invited to present it in Europe. And since I don't like speaking in front of audiences, I thought I'd write something to read out loud. And I sat down and I started, and I didn't want to do the standard text with which you present your own work. So, and and this strange phrase came into my head about a a vegetable plague. I was living in, in the mountains at the time and it just popped into my head and I started writing it and the text that was supposed to be a presentation. And that is why it sort of recapitulates many of the themes of the book. That, that is why it has that structure where it's sort of retelling many of the ideas that are, that are presented in the book. And when I finished it, I thought, well, well this, this seems like a fitting uh, and like a new weird text to end this weird book with. And I included it in all, in all versions, except for the Germans, which, of course, they didn't like it because they said, why are you adding this sort of semi-autobiographical text at the end of a book that already contains an essay that has some fiction, two short stories and a novella? But since that is very much in the spirit of what I like to do, I I decided to include it and, and they finally gave up when the paperback came out. So it's strange. This text is not part of the German edition, but it's out in all other languages. So I'm going to be reading from The Night Gardener. One. It is a vegetable plague. Spreading from tree to tree, unstoppable, invisible, a hidden rot, unseen, unseen by the eyes of the world. Was it born of the deep dark earth? Was it brought to the surface by the mouths of the tiniest creatures? A fungus perhaps? No, it travels faster than spores, it breeds inside tree roots, buried in their wooden hearts an ancient, crawling evil kill it kill it with fire light it up and watch it burn torch all those sickly beeches, firs and giant oaks that have stood the test of time douse their trunks wounded from a thousand insect bites dying now diseased and dying, dead as they stand. Let it burn, and watch the flames reach up to the sky, for left alone it will consume the world, feeding on the death of others, nurtured by all the green grass turned gray. Quiet now, listen, listen to it grow. I met him in the mountains, in a small town where few people live save during the summer months. I was walking at night and I saw him in his garden, digging. My dog crawled under the bushes, ran towards him in the dark, a short white flash in the moonlight. The man bent over, rubbed her head, went down on one knee as my dog offered her belly. I apologised, he said it was ok, that he loved dogs. I asked him if he was guarding at night. Yes he said, it's the best time for it. The plants are asleep and they don't feel as much, suffer less when moved around, like a patient etherized. We should be wary of plants. When he was a boy, there was a giant oak of which he had always been afraid. His grandmother hanged herself from one of its branches. Back then, he told me, it had been a healthy tree, strong and vigorous, while now, some sixty years later, its huge bulk was ridden with parasites and rotting from the inside, so much so that he knew that it would soon have to be removed as it towered above his house and threatened to crush it if it came down. And yet he could not bring himself to fell the gargantuan thing, for it was one of the few remaining specimens of what used to be an old growth forest that covered the land where his house on the whole town now stood, dark, foreboding and beautiful. He pointed at the tree, but in the dark I could see nothing save its massive shadow. It was half dead, he said, rotten, yet still alive and growing. Bats nested inside its trunk and hummingbirds fed on the ruby-red flowers of the parasitic plant which crowned its highest branches, the hermaphrodite Tristerix corymbosus, known locally as quintral, cutre or nipe, which his grandmother used to cut back every year, only to see it regrow with stronger, denser blooms why she killed herself I still don't know they never told me she had committed suicide it was a family secret I was young no more than five or six at the time but later, decades later when my daughter was born my nana, my nanny the woman who had raised me while my own mother went to work told me your grandmother she said she hanged herself from that branch at night It was awful. Terrible. We could not cut her down till the police arrived. At least that is what they told us. Don't cut her down. Leave her there. But your father could not leave her hanging like that. He climbed the tree, higher and higher. No one understood how she had climbed so high and removed the noose from her neck. She fell through the branches, landed with a thud. Your father started hacking away at the trunk with his axe, but his father, your granddaddy, would not let him. He said that she had loved that tree, she always had. She had seen it grow, tended and nurtured it, pruned and watered it, and fussed over every tiny detail. So it stayed there and it's still there, though it's going to have to come down sooner rather than later.
0: Well, it helped me in my 20s when I didn't think there was a whole lot to burn or crash anymore. At the time, I I felt I was a lot more nihilistic. So it sounds like there was some uh, real healing uh, for both of us in in positive ways in our interpersonal relationships, which has fundamentally changed your art. So then let's take this into a totally different place. What did you think when Obama read your book or when it's on the New York Times top 10 list of the year? Because it's... That's not why you're doing this, but what did you think of that?
1: Well, I had a I had a very negative reaction. I guess I had already made a, a pact with myself that I was going to do this for the rest of my life, regardless of results. And uh, I was also writing... The book that I wrote before this was, was a book that had No structure, no central theme. Well, it did have a theme, but very, very obscure. It's a a book about the void and and its it's ways of looking into the void. And to look, you can't look directly at it. So I sort of started studying the lives of mystics and scientists and artists, trying to sort of surround the void so you could actually begin to get a feeling of just, you know, just flinging arrows into it you know you don't you never gonna hit it so what that what I mean by that is that I consider writing a in a very monastic way I think this is I still and I might be naive but I still believe that this is a path you walk down in the search for for deep truths. and if you take that path you really develop a sort of indifference to external opinions because i never expected any type of recognition i I'm, I'm living in chile this i can't be farther from from the rest of the world so when it, when it happened and all this um I don't. I, I, I. guess I didn't like it. That's the truth. My first reaction was very negative. I didn't like the over. I. I. I didn't know that the New York Times did a, 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 a an end of the year list because I don't read those things. I. I've never read the New York Times book review. I just wrote a piece for them, so I, I shouldn't be saying this. But I. <laughs> but I've never read it. I don't read book reviews, I don't, I try, and I also did not know that Obama did a, a, a list in, 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 not because, and, and also, you know, I'm from Chile, it's not like we have a personal close relationship with any US president, no, uh, no. Uh, these are not literary matters, they are just spectacle. And while I'm not, I mean, I'm not stupid. I am grateful for the publicity, and and I've, 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 I've realized from 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 the way that people have reacted that I should be more, that I should be happier about it, and that and that uh, and that it's important. And that he's a great reader. Apparently, he has very good taste. <laughs> this is coming <laughs> I from me. mean, a...
0: <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of dismissive of other people to just say that you should enjoy it because it is it is spectacle mostly. And it doesn't have anything to do with the pact that you made for yourself. And to some extent, I can understand the want to keep this internal world internal because you've already sort of said, this external world, you are picking things up and you're collecting them. But your internal world right now is just in a very special place that took a long time, at least a long enough time to get to in something that you are enjoying. So something like that in a way does kind of threaten the internal world that you were trying to protect.
1: Absolutely. yeah. And, And not only that, I think people who, anybody who's in love with books, grew up thinking that they're the most important thing in the world and knowing that nobody gives a flying fuck about them they don't just don't they don't care i don't know what what it's like in the states but in my in my school i was there were two people who i would win the literary contest every single year because there right. were only two people who wrote in the in the entire like school so it would always be me and this other this other girl uh, yeah. and she became a writer too and and so you fall in love with somebody that, that uh, with something that almost nobody cares about and and then and then when you decide to do it 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 takes uh, i think again no I think we have to think about these things in terms of 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 a monastic discipline of a of a you have to find things that have worth in themselves and that are very hard to find and when when i'm I'm glad that 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 success and recognition came. Uh, well I'm, I'm 42 So I've, I've, it's not like It's at the beginning of my career No And so now the problem becomes um, How to keep on going How to n- not lose that space If you find something That is, has worth If you can actually look at the stuff That you write And, 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 and if the writing in itself Gives you what you need if it becomes a thing in itself, that is very precious. And, 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 and that is something that should be guarded. All these things, uh, uh, the opinions of critics, book sales, uh, people who are famous, and it's not like I'm against everything, no. My, my, uh, I, there are other people who have read the book and, and who have, I've, I've gotten in touch with that mean the world to me. They do. I I was I've, I've had the, the opportunity to speak with people I truly admire like like Adam Curtis uh who is someone who I copy from all the time and he read the book I I, I couldn't believe it so so okay. it's not like I don't care about anybody's opinion but you have to be very careful who you who you give a sort of a piece of your heart to and no US president for me however wonderful you know i'm i'm all i think he's a very special human being but he's still the president of the united states it's a very loaded thing
0: yeah it would it would be problematic i think for anyone to to try and get validation from a president from <laughs> a leader uh, it your validation should should come from within yourself and your immediate family the people who you're who you're caring for there's a lot more discussion ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Welcome back. You're listening to Storybound. I'm with author Benjamin Labatut, and we're discussing his book, When We Cease to Understand the World. What you're talking a lot about that internal world is important to me.
1: How old are your is your child now? She turns 11 in, in, in a couple of months.
0: That's exciting. My stepdaughters are six and seven and they feel like they're going on 11 yeah, this at morning. this point. <laughs> and they're so skilled at sitting down at a piano and feeling it out or picking up a book and just being curious about it or wanting to play school and they play the teacher. Hmm. And yeah, I've learned so much about that internal world through them in ways that have reminded me of what writing was like for me as a child. That's an interesting process. And once you let that in, you are reminded parts of yourself that you just sort of forgot about along the way as you were developing it. As you said your daughter is 11 and you say you're 42, you're at these really interesting ages in both your lives where a lot of momentum is picking up. And so what is feeling immediate for you that this book is out in the world and it belongs to other people now? So how is writing finding you this week, or next week.
1: Well, I am going through. Uh, after I finished that book, and when I saw the publishers that were picking it up, I realized that it would it would have an impact just because of the quality of the publishers, especially in places like Italy and Germany. So I I started writing. I I I've written four books after that one. I saw. It, I didn't want any type of success to... I I didn't want to have to worry about the finishing your next book thing, no? So what I did was write really fast and I wrote four of them. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them was worthless. One of them was an insane idea. I finished some other person's book, if you can believe it, and I never thought about copyright or anything like that. I just thought it was a good idea, which it wasn't. And then... uh, So I've just finished... A book that I can actually publish so I handed it in so uh, since I've been writing non-stop for the, for four years it was really a moment to to stop and sort of regain get in touch with what we've, we've been talking before you no know? let pull something out from inside you go go quiet again which is uh, and I feel that it's that's where I am where I am right now I'm not writing and when I don't write I am the worst person than you can imagine like my family can't stand me because there's all this raging mental energy that has nowhere to go and I had to write like I don't know I I, I I train with with a Japanese sword and, and I do martial arts and I've been doing a lot of that and I've been I've been trying to find other things to do with my mind because it's it's hard, it's hard not to write. It's hard not to write. Three. The next morning, I went for a walk in the woods with my seven-year-old daughter and we found the bodies of two dead dogs. They had been poisoned. I have never seen anything like it. I knew the bloodied corpses of puppies on the highway crushed by tires of unrelenting traffic. I had seen a dead cat, disembowelled by a pack of stray dogs, and I even stabbed the neck of an unsuspecting lamb myself and saw her bleed to death in front of the gauchos that I was staying with, who would roast her for an assault. But none of those deaths, however gruesome, came anywhere near the effects of poison. The first dog was a German Shepherd, lying in the middle of the forest path. His mouth gaping, gums swollen and blackened, tongue out five times its normal size, blood vessels filled to bursting point. I inched towards it and told my little girl to look away, but she would not listen and crept up behind me, burying her face in the folds of my jacket and peeking out. The dog's legs were stiff and stuck straight out. His abdomen had bloated with gasses that stretched his skin and made it look like the belly of a pregnant woman. The whole cadaver seemed ready to explode and spill its entrails all over the place. But what struck me the most was the expression of unrelenting pain on his features. Such was the agony he had endured, that even in death he appeared to be screaming. The second dog was some fifty yards away to the side of the trail, hidden in the undergrowth. It was a mongrel cross between a bloodhound and a beagle with a black head on a white body. And even though he had surely died from the same substance that had killed the shepherd he had suffered none of the disfiguring effects of the poison were it not for the flies crawling round his eyelids I could have imagined that he had merely fallen asleep we did not know the first dog but the hound was a friend of ours my daughter had played with him since she was four he would sometimes walk with us or come scratching at my door for scraps. She called him Patches. And while she did not cry, as soon as she recognised him, when we stepped out of the forest path and into the clearing, she broke down. I hugged her as hard as I could. She said she was afraid, as I was, for her own dog, the sweetest, kindest animal I have ever met. Why, she asked me, Why were they poisoned? I told her I didn't know, but it was probably an accident. Rat poison, slug poison, there are many deadly chemicals used for gardening and there are many wonderful gardens in this place. They had probably eaten some poison without realizing what it was. Or perhaps they had hunted a rat that was itself sluggish after chewing on those tiny wax cubes that people place around the borders of their properties. What I did not tell her is that this happens every year. Once or twice a year dead dogs. Sometimes one, sometimes a lot more, but unfailingly the beginning of summer and the end of autumn bring dead dogs. The people who live here year-round know that it is one of them who does the poisoning one of their own, but no one knows who. He or she puts out cyanide, and for a couple of weeks we find carcasses around town. Strays, mostly, since lots of people from the neighbouring areas come up the mountain road to get rid of their unwanted dogs, but also our pets. There are a couple of suspects, individuals who have made threats in the past. There is a man who lives in the same street as we do who once told a friend of mine that I should keep my dog on a lead. Did I not know that someone was poisoning dogs every summer? That man lives three houses down from ours but I have never talked to him and I've only seen him once or twice standing next to his car smoking. He nods, I nod but we do not talk. 4. I despair at how slowly my garden grows. The winters up in the mountains are harsh, spring and summer are short and very dry, and the soil in my garden is poor as it was built on a rubbish heap. The former owner, the man who built the cabin and sold it to me, had to even out the terrain with rubble and construction debris, so that every now and then, When I dig into the ground to plant flowers and trees, I find cans, bottle caps, and pieces of shredded plastic beneath the ground. There are a great number of fertilizers I could use, but I am fond of my trees as they are, even if they do not grow tall. Their roots have nowhere to go. Below the thin layer of soil, I have managed to pile over the rubbish Lies hard, compact clay, so most will remain stunted with a strange bonsai beauty, but stunted nonetheless I'm writing in English now, and I have to translate my new book to spanish, so that that that's going to take a couple of months so there's always a little bit work of work, but it's not like. It's not that rush you get from from writing from writing a new piece of text and just and it just that it's a hit for me. it is a real chemical de- I have a dependence on that
0: on that. I've always said that when you're not writing, you're living. Hmm. boredom is something I'm trying to teach the girls that boredom is is very healthy it a lot that's where you. That's where you open up. I think boredom is the pathway to, con- or, or it was originally the pathway to consciousness. Whether or not that's true, it just feels true to me. My feelings don't matter on that in terms of truth, but I want to know the English title is different. Originally, it was Un Verdor Terrible, mm-hmm. correct? Yep. What was the thinking on the
1: change? Well, the the first thing there's there's absolutely no good translation for that. It sounds horrible. A terrible verdure. A horrible greening. It's it's it, There's no good translation for it. That's that's the that's the short answer. The longer answer is that it, when we cease to understand the world was one was the original title of the book. It heads the the section on quantum mechanics. It, that's the title of one of the of the nouvelle that's that's in the middle of the book and then i came up with the final line uh, in spanish un verdor terrible and i thought well that's that's better it's more poetic it's less on the nose but the book has many titles it, in 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 german it's called the blinding light and in in france it's called uh, the blinding lights so so I think that just as Alexander Grothendieck says in the book when you have an object that is that is complex it's good to have different sets of eyes it's it's okay that it has you're never going to if it's a, if it's really good if if a title is really good in English it's gonna be hard to translate it into another language the same goes for Spanish or anything if it's really one of those titles it should only work in one language it is hard to find a title that can translate to others no and now that I'm I'm I'm, I'm going the other way around because I'm I've, I've been writing in English for the past couple of years now and like the like the text I, I just read I, I wrote that in English directly and it has a different feel from the rest of the book and it lets you, the English language just lets you do things that's it's impossible to do in Spanish. People hate it when I say that, because you're supposed to have this just giant love for your own language. But I, I, I hate Spanish. I hate the way it sounds. The, the sounds clash into each other all the time. There's not enough you know synonyms. It's, it's hellish to work with. It's, it's really hard to produce text that is clean, sort of. It's, it's just a, it's a mess of a language. But it's also my... I, I really have a, a split brain in that sense because I, I, I stopped speaking Spanish for about seven years when I was young. And, I, and, and to this day, I, I actually prefer to speak English. I speak with my daughter in English and Spanish, with my friends as well. And now I've done this transition where the last two books, have, I've written them in English.
0: Do you dream in English?
1: Yes, of course. The night gardener told me that the man who invented modern-day nitrogen fertilizers, a German chemist called Fritz Haber, was also the first man to create a weapon of mass destruction, namely chlorine gas, which he poured into the trenches of the First World War. His green gas killed thousands and made countless soldiers claw at their throats as a poison boiled inside their lungs, drowning them in their own vomit and phlegm, while his fertilizer, which he harvested from the nitrogen present in the air itself, saved hundreds of millions from famine and fueled our current overpopulation. Today, nitrogen is more than plentiful. But in centuries past, wars were fought over bird and batshit and thieves ransacked the bones of the Egyptian pharaohs to steal the nitrogen hidden in their bones. According to the night gardener, the Mapuche Indians would crush the skeletons of their vanquished enemies and spread that dust on their farms as fertilizer, always working in the dead of night when the trees are fast asleep for they believed that some of them the Canelo and the Araucaria, the monkey puzzle could see into a warrior's soul, steal his deepest secrets and spread them through the shared roots of the forest where plush tendrils whispered to pale mushroom mycelium ruining his standing before the community. His secret life lost exposed and bared to the world the man would slowly begin to shrivel drying up from the inside out without ever knowing why. 5. The way this small town is built is very strange whichever road you take it will invariably lead you down to a small patch of woods tucked away at its lowest edge one of the few areas that survived the giant fire which ravaged the region at the end of the 19th, threatening the existence of the town itself. The fire raged until it burnt itself out. A forest that had stood for 200 years disappeared in less than two weeks. It was mostly replanted with pine and the original native species were all lost except for this tiny miniature wilderness which stands in stark contrast to the pruned hedges and decorative gardens that surround it on all sides. It has a strange magnetic power over me. It pulls me in and leads me down and down towards the old path that reaches the lake. I have spent days walking among the trees there always alone for the locals seem to avoid the area, although I do not know why. And most outsiders, the rich families who rent cottages for the summer months, visit it rarely or only see it in passing. There is a small grotto at its center, carved in limestone. The night gardener tells me there used to be a giant plant nursery that kept its seeds inside the mouth of the cave in perpetual darkness. It is empty these days visited now and then by adolescent boys and girls who leave their condom wrappers on the ground or tourists whose soiled toilet paper I have to pick up and bury. The lake lies beyond and that small stretch of water is where families gather It is artificial, man-made, more a pond than a lake really, but it looks natural enough for a dozen ducks to nest there. A red-tailed hawk patrols the southern side. A white crane lords over the northern, swampier half. In spring, the tiny streams that feed the reservoir trickle and sing, but later they dry up, are overgrown and disappear as if they had never existed. The lake has not frozen over in decades. I was told that a small child drowned after falling through the ice the last time it did, back when Pinochet had just come to power, but no one has been able to tell me the little boy's name. It's probably just a tale to keep the children away from the lake at night, one that has survived even though the climate has warmed and ice no longer forms. This town was founded by European immigrants. There is a decidedly foreign feel to this place, one that is not common in other parts of Chile, even though there are some small southern cities where you can also see blonde, blue-eyed girls running among our decidedly homogeneous mix of Spaniards and Mapuches this place was built as a haven high up in the mountains one of the things that has always surprised me about chile is that we do not inhabit the mountains the andes are there like a sword stuck down our backs but we ignore those fabulous peaks and settle on the coast as if the whole country suffered from terminal vertigo a fear of heights that stops us from enjoying the most prominent feature of our unique landscape. Less than an hour away from this town, right where you leave the highway to head up the mountain road, there is a huge military garrison. The house I bought was built by a retired army lieutenant. I did a little research on him out of curiosity and saw that he was accused of being involved in the disappearance of several political prisoners during the dictatorship. I met him on only two occasions, when he showed me the place and when we signed the papers. I did not know at the time, although I suspected it because of the low price he asked, but he was terminally ill. He died less than a year later. The night gardener tells me he was a hateful man, despised by everyone in town since he would walk around with his old service revolver at his hip and refuse to pay workers for the repairs they did to his house. When we moved in, I found an old grenade atop one of the coffee tables in the living room with no firing pin. Try as I might, I cannot remember what I did with it.
0: There's still more reading ahead. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. Welcome back. You're listening to Storybound with author Benjamin Labatut, and he's reading from his book When We Cease to Understand the World.
1: 6 The night gardener used to be a mathematician and now speaks of mathematics as former alcoholics speak of booze with a mixture of fear and longing. He told me that he had the beginnings of a brilliant career but had quit altogether after encountering the work of Alexander Grothendieck, a world-famous mathematician who revolutionised geometry as no one had since the time of Euclid and who inexplicably gave up mathematics at the height of his international fame, leaving a bewildering legacy that is still descending shockwaves through all branches of his discipline, but which he completely refused to discuss right up to his death in 2014. Like the night gardener, when Grotendieck turned 40, he left his house, his family and his friends, and lived like a monk holed up in the Pyrenees it was as if Einstein had given up physics after publishing his theory of relativity, or Maradona had decided never to touch a ball after winning the World Cup. The night gardener's decision to drop out of life was not merely because of his admiration for Grothendieck, of course. He had also gone through a bad divorce, become estranged from his only daughter and been diagnosed with skin cancer. But he insisted that all of that, however painful, was secondary to the sudden realisation that it was mathematics, not nuclear weapons, computers, biological warfare or our climate Armageddon which was changing our world to the point where, in a couple of decades at most we would simply not be able to grasp what being human really meant not that we ever did, he said, but things are getting worse we can pull atoms apart peer back at the first light and predict the end of the universe with just a handful of equations squiggly lines and arcane symbols that normal people cannot fathom even though they hold sway over their lives but it's not just regular folks Even scientists no longer comprehend the world. Take quantum mechanics, the crown jewel of our species, the most accurate, far-ranging, and beautiful of all our physical theories. It lies behind the supremacy of our smartphones, behind the internet, behind the coming promise of godlike computing power. It has completely reshaped our world. We know how to use it, it works, as if by some strange miracle, and yet there is not a human soul, alive or dead, who actually gets it. The mind cannot come to grips with its paradoxes and contradictions. It's as if the theory had fallen to earth from another planet, and we simply scamper around it like apes, toying and playing with it, but with no true understanding. So he gardens now, tends to his own and also works on other properties in town. He has no friends that I know of, and his few neighbours consider him a bit of a weirdo, but I like to think of him as my friend, as he will sometimes leave buckets of compost outside my house as a gift for my garden. The oldest tree on my property is a lemon, a sprawling mass of twigs with a heavy bough. The night gardener once asked me if I knew how citrus trees died. When they reach old age if they are not cut down and they manage to survive drought, disease and innumerable attacks of pests, fungi and plagues they succumb from overabundance. When they come To the end of their life cycle, they put out a final, massive crop of lemons. In their last spring, their flowers bud and blossom in enormous bunches and fill the air with a smell so sweet that it stings your nostrils from two blocks away. Then their fruits ripen all at once whole limbs break off due to their excessive weight and after a few weeks the ground is covered with rotting lemons it is a strange sight he said to see such exuberance before death one can picture it in animal species those million salmon mating and spawning before dropping dead or the billions of herrings that turn the seawater white with their sperm and eggs and cover the coasts of the north east pacific for hundreds of miles but trees are very different organisms and such displays of overripening feel out of character for a plant and more akin to our own species with its uncontrolled devastating growth I asked him how long my own citrus had to live. He told me that there was no way to know, at least not without cutting it down and looking inside its trunk. But really, who would want to do that?
0: The excerpts you heard in this episode were from Benjamin's book, When We Cease to Understand the World, available now at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to Nicholas During and Abigail Dunn at New York Books and Epidemic Sound. And thank you to Benjamin for reading and rambling with me. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Pogglomerate. Audio cleanup by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineers is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting, mixing, and mastering for this episode were done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. Thanks for listening.